Good afternoon. Is this on? Can you hear me? Is that working? Yeah. yeah, good. Welcome to Cato, and thank you for showing up despite the weather. We recognize competition is pretty stiff today, uh, but we appreciate you all being here. Uh, this is our brand new shiny building. We're very proud of it. We just recently completed it about uh, a month ago or so and had an unveiling for our benefactors uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we, in addition to adding a seventh floor, we, we knocked this building out uh, about 50 feet south, created this conference center, which in its current uh, incarnation is, is uh, partitioned twice. Uh, this is the first event that, that I've participated in in this room. We have a, a brand new Hayek Auditorium for those of you who've been here before. We've expanded the Hayek Auditorium. Uh, it has a 205 seat capacity. Uh, we've added a policy center where the Hayek Auditorium used to be, which is sort of a law school style uh, seminar room. We have a library on the second floor and we have, um, a, we have a roof garden for cocktail parties and things like that on the seventh floor. I'm, I'm also told that we have a gym which uh, I have not seen, <laughs> but it exists. Uh, my name is Dan Eikenson. I am director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. And when I say trade policy, I mean trade and investment uh, policy studies. We, we haven't focused a whole lot yet on, on investment issues, uh, but that's uh, about to change. And what better way to sort of mark that change uh, than to have a policy forum on the topic uh, with this excellent uh, panel of renowned experts on investment. So the, the impetus for this forum was a message I received from Jim Bacchus last month informing me that, uh, that he had just returned from Doha, where the International Chamber of Commerce, under his leadership, uh, had just announced the reissue of the guidelines for international investment, its first revision in 40 years, and that he would like to take me up uh, on, an, on a standing open invitation to discuss it at Cato. And I thought, how promising. Another international initiative out of Doha. <laughs> well, it just so happens that during that same week, the Obama administration uh, published its revisions to the model bit, long-awaited revisions. So I asked Jim if he thought it would make sense to invite somebody from the administration to come and participate. Uh, and he said almost without uh, hesitation, uh, Josh Calmer, Deputy Assistant USTR for Investment, is your man uh, if you really want to have a good discussion from the administration on the model bit. And then that got me thinking, uh, two lawyers talking about rules and guidelines for 90 minutes, and we might have to distribute pillows and blankets to the audience. So I thought of Nancy McLernan, uh, who is president and CEO of uh, the Organization for International Investment, one of Washington's foremost experts on, on FDI inflows, and coiner, or at least popularizer, uh, of the term insourcing, uh, a term that the administration has taken to since the president used that term in his State of the Union address a few months ago. By and large, uh, but, but with some exceptions, of course, investment policy issues have been sort of the neglected stepchild in the policy debate, uh, the policy debate about globalization at least. Most of the attention has fallen to the firstborn, coddled child that everyone dotes over, international trade. And of course, trade is very important to the story of globalization. But if trade flow statistics get you excited, uh, you ought to have a look at the investment numbers. They're quite remarkable. Uh, last year, global exports amounted to about $18 trillion, uh, but sales of foreign affiliates around the world were about $30 trillion, far exceeding trade. Uh, FDI abroad is the main vehicle through which uh, U.S. companies reach foreign customers. And contrary to some characterizations, uh, FDI abroad or outsourcing uh, is primarily not undertaken to serve demand back here in the United States. Uh, in fact, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, about 90% uh, of, of foreign direct investment abroad is to serve foreign demand. Uh, about 10% of that investment is for producing for consumption here in the United States. President Obama uh, sort of set the tone earlier this year during his State of the Union address by referring to U.S. companies that invest in productive activities abroad as greedy or un-American Companies, the president claims, which get tax breaks for shipping jobs overseas. Outsourcing has been portrayed really as some betrayal uh, of American workers by companies that only care about the bottom line. Well, yes, caring about the bottom line is what companies are supposed to do. Uh, but uh, some companies that, that outsource, the, the same companies that outsource tend to be the same companies that uh, invest and hire here in the United States as well. 
president is more predisposed toward insourcing. He's been talking about that a lot, and insourcing is very good for the economy, and I'm sure Nancy's going to talk quite a lot about that. As you might expect from somebody uh, who's been at Cato for almost 12 years, I don't think uh, that there should be any restrictions on investment flows. Uh, I think freedom of capital to flee or to not even show up in the first place uh, are fairly strong disciplines on bad policy. I can't imagine Argentina is going to be attracting a whole lot of investment anytime soon. Uh, and I think that speaks to perhaps uh, the absence of a need for rules. But should there be rules? Uh, should there be rules setting out rights of investors and obligations of governments? Uh, it's not entirely convincing. I'm not entirely convinced that they're necessary or that they need to be as broadly considered as many treaties and agreements have them today. Uh, in today's globalized world, governments are competing for capital investment and human capital, and the best policies uh, are going to attract those assets. Bad policies will chase investment away. But, but I suspect I'm in the minority on this stage, and I suppose worldwide, given that there are some 2,800 bilateral investment treaties, I'm certainly in the minority uh, in the world. Uh, so if there are, in, if there are going to be rules also, uh, ha- how should we arbitrate alleged violations through investor state mechanisms, through government-to-government uh, resolution? These issues are the subject of some serious controversy, and I'm going to turn to the panel now for some answers. Uh, our first speaker is Josh Calmer. He is a Deputy Assistant USTR for Investment. He's responsible for developing and implementing the United States' foreign investment policies by representing the United States in investment negotiations with foreign governments and by representing the USTR on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. Uh, He has been a lead U.S. negotiator for several investment agreements, including the investment chapters of the U.S. Free Trade Agreement with Korea and Malaysia and the bilateral investment treaties with India, Pakistan, and the Czech Republic. Mr. Kalmer was previously Assistant General Counsel at USTR, where he represented the United States in litigation before the WTO in the Boeing Airbus case, which was then the largest dispute in the history of the WTO. It's been surpassed by something. I don't know. It depends on how you count. Okay. Okay. Uh, prior to joining USTR, uh, Mr. Kalmer was an associate in the Washington office of, of Hogan and Hartson, uh, where he practiced principally in the areas of international litigation and arbitration and international trade. Uh, Mr. Kalmer graduated with honors from Stanford University and received his degree cum laude from Georgetown University. He is a term member uh, of the Council on Foreign Relations and a member of the bar, the bars of California and the District of Columbia. And finally, uh, as some in the audience may already know, Josh will be joining Prowl and Mooring here in Washington in late June after eight years with the USTR. His practice will focus on international investment issues, such as those being discussed today as well as on the broader range of international business issues. Please help me welcome Josh Kalmer. Thanks, everybody, for um, coming out today. I know the weather is certainly a a deterrent to being indoors, and so it means a lot that you're here. Uh, Dan, thank you to you and to Cato for for having me, and Nancy and Jim. It's uh, really a privilege to, to, to be with both of you. Um, first thing I should just note, um, as we government folks tend to do in these settings, is, is we just emphasize that we're speaking in our personal capacities just to, uh, just to make sure we're free to speak with, with a little more uh, candor and detail than we might ordinarily do. I, I would say that my personal views tend to intersect pretty closely with those of the U.S. government, so that you're not going to, you wouldn't find a lot of daylight, but um, just wanted to, to mention that. Before, I'm going to talk about the U.S. experience with bilateral investment treaties and with investment rules generally, but before doing that, I thought I would just step back for a minute to, to look at the big picture that, that Dan uh, very well began to frame, just sort of ask the question that, you know, I think we should all from time to time ask ourselves, which is, you know, what are we doing here? Why do we care? What's the ultimate objective? Um, I think for most of us, it, that there is a belief that international investment is a good thing, that whether you're talking about outward investment from the United States, inward investment in the United States, the same thing to or from any other country, that there's a strong case to be made that the economic, you know, there are significant economic benefits, whether it's in exports and jobs created in compensation, 
research and development spending. Um, you know, you need only look at Afi's material to, to get the very best in, in the description of, of all of the benefits. And so um, that, that set of benefits and that sort of core belief is an important first principle that I think a lot of us proceed from. And then we get into to a more ambiguous uh, world. Um, so what we're ultimately trying to do, I think, and, and this is true whether you're talking about binding legal rules or uh, investment principles, the excellent ones that, that Jim um, uh, put together, or just the extraordinary initiatives that Nancy's undertaken, um, is creating norms and sending signals. So whether it's the United States government, U.S. companies, what we ask of other governments, international organizations. We're looking for tools to create norms, send signals that where, whatever we're talking about, wherever we're talking about, is a good place to invest, that there are economic benefits uh, that are going to redound to investors, and that we are committed to sort of the larger enterprise of, of, of stimulating investment and uh, enjoying the, the, the benefits that flow from that. Okay, so... Getting into the U.S. experience, I mean, we have had uh, bilateral investment treaties, free trade agreement, investment chapters, which are substantially the same thing for uh, 25, 30 years. And uh, th there are certain core elements or core protections that uh, we pursue in, in this context that are similar to, to those in treaties around the world. Non-discrimination. You know, governments shouldn't treat investors of foreign countries differently than they treat their own investors. Expropriation, if you're going to expropriate, which you can do as a government, you have to pay prompt, adequate, and effective compensation and otherwise uh, act consistent with international law. You have to provide due process, sort of in, in judicial administrative settings domestically. Uh, you have to allow money related to an investment to flow freely across borders. You have to provide... Uh, an effective means, typically through the, uh, the vehicle of investor state arbitration, for investors to directly enforce their rights. These are all things that are fairly well agreed in the international investment community, and they're things that, that, that we follow as core principles and have been a part of our uh, model bilateral investment treaty for, for years. Um, but there is another side to the, the, the discussion and the consideration of investment rules in the United States that uh, has to recognize another set or other sets of very important equities as well, which have to do with the recognition that with a bilateral treaty, with any set of reciprocal rules, you've got to make sure you're comfortable as a government, as you know, a set of regulatory authorities living with uh, the same constraints that we're asking other governments to take on. So what that means is when we're crafting rules, when we're crafting sort of uh, aspirational or, or, or the optimal outcomes for, for us to achieve in our investment negotiations, we have to make sure that we're comfortable living with them, that they still allow us to, to regulate, to protect health, safety, and the environment, um, that we're you know giving uh, foreign investors sort of comparable rights to those that U.S. investors have, um, and, and otherwise that the, the entire set of public interest uh, regulations and imperatives is protected. So what that means is whenever we're you know, both negotiating an individual treaty or uh, revising a, a model bid, we're constantly having to strike a balance. You know, how, how, <clears throat> excuse me, how on the one hand do we uh, protect investors at, to, to the greatest extent possible uh, and at the same time protect the discretion of our government regulatory authorities to do their jobs and to protect you know, whatever public interest uh, it is. The debate over that balance is sort of where the game is played in U.S. investment policy and it's a, it's a game that we uh, started to, to play again uh, when the Obama administration came in in early 2009. So that uh, the, the model bit that, that Dan referred to that came out just in April was actually the product uh, of about three years of, of pretty intensive uh, deliberation within the administration with stakeholders, business community, labor unions, uh, environmental and other public interest organizations to, to try to determine where that balance is, what is the, the 
sort of proper formulation of, uh, of rules and rights and obligations that, that will both achieve the protections for our investors and also the uh, protection of government regulatory authority that we need to need to achieve. A, a lot of you, I think, uh, had some involvement in that process. We tried to make it as open to the public as possible. Uh, unfortunately, we were able to, to wrap it up on April 20th. Um, people have probably seen, I don't know how I'm doing on time, Dan, I'm sure you'll, you know, have the hook, but, uh, and you should, but, you know, a few things, I mean, I'll just describe briefly what we did in the review and sort of where we go from here, and then I'll, I'll try to end the remarks so we have as much time as possible for, for questions. The, the, the way we set up uh, the review process was as, as one in which the existing balance that we were working with, which was reflected in our, in our model treaty from 2004, was pretty solid. Uh, we felt like it had worked pretty well. It hadn't been shown to be deficient either from the perspective of protecting investors or from the perspective of protecting government regulatory authority. And so whether views were coming from within the government or from outside, uh, there was a burden that this, we weren't starting with a blank piece of paper. Uh, there was sort of a rebuttable presumption that we'd struck a pretty good balance in 2004 um, and that people were going to have to make the case for changes. And so we anticipated uh, and, in fact, ended up with a, with a fairly targeted set of changes to the, to the treaty that, that fall into a few different categories. Um, the first category is sort of as, as close as you can come to, to uh, motherhood and apple pie and investment policy as possible, which is... Uh, in the area of transparency and public participation. And almost by definition, issues that arise under investment treaties involve important questions of public policy, you know, what the government is doing and how it interacts with what an investor is trying to do uh, and whether there's a problem with it. Uh, and so there is sort of a consistent imperative to make sure that whether you're talking about the, the promulgation of, uh, of rules or the conduct of investor state arbitration proceedings or whatever, that there is as much transparency, openness, and public participation as, as possible. Uh, so a handful of the changes that we put in, or a small portion of the overall handful that we made, had to do with that, uh, that objective. Second category has to do uh, with a set of challenges that just between the period of 2004 when we completed the last model and 2009 when we started this review, really crystallized, which are the, the, the challenges arising from uh, the very loaded term state-led economies. Um, you know, these are economies, we all can identify a bunch of them around the world that uh, have substantial government involvement in the economy uh, as commercial actors, um, but potentially on the basis of preferences or, or uh, advantages that create distortions and sort of unlevel the playing field. This is something that um, a lot of companies that come to us with concerns about um, whether it was the, the, the you know, preferential financing that state-owned enterprises were getting or indigenous innovation policies or, or what have you, we realized that this was an area where the case was being made that, that it was worth uh, updating the bit. And so we, we took a really hard look at what we could do in the context of an investment treaty, recognizing that uh, as opposed to a free trade agreement, which is a much broader and more comprehensive kind of agreement where uh, countries expect very significant changes. We're a little more limited in an investment treaty context, particularly with um, you know, negotiating partners like China and India. So the trick was, how do we do something meaningful on the distortions created by significant state involvement in the economy, um, but, but do so in a way that still allows us to negotiate treaties and not uh, cause our negotiating partners to to want to do something else. Um, a couple of things that we focused on. One is indigenous innovation policies, which you know, people are probably very familiar with that term. Uh, it basically refers to situations where governments require foreign competitors in their markets, um, typically as investors, to purchase or use or accord some sort of preference to a domestically developed technology as a means of, you know, as a, as a condition for, for competing. Um, so it could be a, you know, a chip in a mobile phone or, or something like that. Highly distortive uh, sort of messes with the, 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 the commercial preferences of a lot of companies uh, can easily uh, unlevel the playing field. And so something we thought uh, was necessary to try to address in the bid. And so we put in a new provision to do that. Uh, another thing we did was 
to ensure in the process of setting standards, you know, whether it's a, a technical regulation or something, you know, very kind of wonky technical stuff uh, related to um, the, uh, the, the standards for a given sector, that the process of developing standards and technical regulations was open to foreign participation, that there was a sort of a transparency and foreign participation element to it, and so that a, that a government uh, couldn't sort of exclude or hamper foreign competition solely by, by virtue of a, a closed, domestically focused uh, regulation development process. Uh, that's essentially a summary of what we did in the area of state-led uh, economies. And then the final category of things, and then I'll, I'll wrap up, has to do with, uh, with labor and the environment. Um, labor and the environment are topics that, that we have sought to address in our investment treaties uh, since 2004. Most countries don't even mention the words, but it has been a priority of, of our government generally, and in particular of this administration, to do whatever is possible in the context of, of an investment treaty uh, to advance strong labor and environmental protections around the world and to call on governments um, to uh, you know, to abide by uh, their domestic labor and environmental laws, to not uh, depart from those those laws and those standards um, in an effort to attract investment. It was a very challenging exercise because uh, there are, are, are view, very strongly held views sort of on both sides of the, the equation. On one side, um, a lot of investors, I think, reasonably feel that uh, if you make the, the affirmative obligations on governments to, to raise their labor and environmental standards so high, you basically price yourselves out of the market. Nobody's going to even negotiate with us, um, and, and you know we won't get the protections for our investors. We won't even have the opportunity to do anything positive on labor and the environment with these countries. That's one extreme. Um, the, other, uh, the other end of the continuum uh, also... Uh, you know, I, and I think we all thought, had a legitimate point of view, which is, okay, but that doesn't mean you do nothing. This is not, you know, that there, there are uh, ways in which you can promote these values. These values are important, and they need not be uh, sort of uh, expressed in a way that causes you to, to be unable to, to negotiate uh, a treaty. So we had to find a middle ground. Uh, we ultimately did find a middle ground that I think, um, if you read public comments, everybody sort of more or less equivalently is dissatisfied with, which is <clears throat> sort of the measure of success uh, in the investment world. And so we, we feel reasonably good about, about how, how that all came out. Um, we're now launching into a pretty ambitious program of trying to, to negotiate treaties. And so we're uh, reaching back out to China and India. We're trying to advance discussions with Russia. Um, there are a bunch of countries in sub-Saharan Africa that, that are impressive reformers that uh, we're working with more, more significantly um, and so, in a way, it's uh, Dan, Dan mentioned my um, upcoming uh, departure from USTR, which I, I uh, you know, be very sad to leave government. Although this is a very exciting move I'm making. Although I'm, you know, leaving just when it's getting fun. I mean, this will be this will be a time when we're really engaging internationally. I think getting getting hopefully really good protections for our investors and doing some positive things internationally. Um, and so, I will end my remarks there and uh, turn it over to Nancy. I think. Oh, great. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate the comments and best of luck uh, back in the Thank private you. sector. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Nancy McLernan. Nancy is uh, president and CEO of the Organization for International Investment, which is an association representing the unique interests uh, of U.S. subsidiaries of global companies or what we call insourcing companies. Uh, with a strong background in economics, her advocacy efforts focus on educating legislators about the important role U.S. US subsidiaries play in the American economy and policy issues that would make the U.S. a more competitive location for foreign direct investment and job creation. McLernan's expertise on cross-border investment trends and related legislative initiatives is often sought and cited uh, by the media, including NBC News, CNBC, ABC News, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Washington Post, all the biggies. Uh, in addition, she has written a variety of articles on policies impacting global business that have been published in numerous national newspapers. Uh, McLernan was recently recognized by the Hill newspaper as one of Washington's top lobbyists among associations. 
Ms. McLernan holds a Master's of Economics from George Mason University, where she received a fellowship from the Ludwig von Mises Institute uh, and a BS in Economics from Virginia Tech. Uh, prior to joining OFI, Ms. McLernan was Legislative Director for Trade Policy at Citizens for a Sound Economy, which is a citizens advocacy group here in Washington. Please help me welcome Nancy McLernan. Thank you, Dan. I think this works. I want to make sure everybody can hear me. Um, pleasure to, uh, to be here today. Appreciate Cato holding this forum. Uh, Josh and Jim, very happy to be on the panel with you as well. Uh, as Dan said, investment policy is often forgotten about and not discussed as much as trade. But as Dan also mentioned, the cross-border value of investment surpasses that of trade. And there's a lot of economic value that we can get by, by promoting um, uh, foreign investment in the U.S. and around the world. Um, BITS and the ICC guidelines, for the most part, the extent to which Washington has focused on them, mostly has focused on them from the perspective of U.S. companies investing overseas. But it's also an opportunity for us to hold up a mirror to our own policies to ensure that we're providing a competitive environment so that we attract, uh, as our mandate indicated, the most uh, investment uh, that we possibly can. And even though we are a fairly open environment, my organization wouldn't exist if we didn't have policies that somehow put some of our companies at a disadvantage. So there's certainly, um, there's certainly some areas there, tax policy, um, government contracting, acquisition policy. I think that everyone will remember Dubai ports. In fact, Dan and I met on a trip to Abu Dhabi and Dubai as we try to figure all of that out and try to understand how those governments and those businesses worked. Um, there are certainly still areas of ownership restrictions in airlines and telecom and other things. So even though the U.S. Um, and Washington community, I think, has focused on these um, issues in terms of U.S. investment abroad, certainly it's also an opportunity for us to take a look at our own policies. Um, the U.S. has long been the single largest recipient of cross-border investment. Uh, the global capital pie is growing, which is great news, which means that there's more opportunity out there, but the slice that the U.S. has is growing smaller. Um, in, uh, what is it, 2009, we attract, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, in 1999, we attracted a little over 40% of the global investment pie. And then in 2009, our percentage really is just about 17%. So it has shrunk quite a bit. I mean, the pie has gotten bigger, but we're not taking advantage of that. If you look at who is investing here, 90, 95% of it is coming from Europe and Canada. A lot of the global investment is coming from emerging markets. We're not benefiting from any of that. So it was great to hear Josh talk about doing some investment agreements with Brazil, uh, well, Russia, and China and, and some of those areas which I think hold out a lot of potential for the U.S. Even if we look at foreign investment in the U.S. as a share of our overall economy, that's dropped over the past decade. Um, in uh, 2000, uh, foreign investment made up a little over three and a quarter percent of our GDP. And last year it was uh, at about one and a half percent. So the U.S. is losing out to other countries that are actively going out and recruiting foreign direct investment. And my organization has been working to figure out what can the U.S. do to actually bring more of this foreign investment here. And I'll go through a little bit more of the why you need to care uh, piece that, that Josh mentioned, which is that foreign companies have a proportionately large impact on the U.S. economy than the number of companies might suggest it does. So U.S. subs of foreign companies is about 1% of U.S. business, but they represent uh, directly 5 million jobs. Um, and even more than that, uh, their overall impact on the economy, if you include suppliers and local businesses, um, they actually are attributable to 21 million jobs, which is about 12% of the U.S. workforce. And the study, um, uh, we released a study last week which looked at the chain reaction of foreign investment in the U.S. So not, not only the employees that work directly for Sony, but who are the suppliers that count on them, who are the local businesses that the employees spend their paycheck on. And it was pretty, pretty darn significant. showed that for every one direct job at a foreign company in the U.S., three jobs pop up in the U.S. economy. If we just focus on manufacturing, which foreign companies in the U.S. are concentrated in, directly they employ 2 million jobs in the manufacturing sector, 
which is about 17% of the, the total. So if you think about a resurgence in American manufacturing, global investment in the U.S. is going to play a big role in that. But if you look at the multiplier there, for every one job at a manufacturing facility at a U.S. subsidiary, there's five additional jobs in the economy. So that's, that's pretty significant. Um, compensation at our companies is 40% higher than that at all U.S. businesses. That doesn't mean that they're paying a secretary more to do the same job. Of course, that means that the jobs at these companies are higher skill, higher level, therefore, you know, really good jobs. Um, Our companies manufacture about 21% of U.S. exports. So the goal of doubling U.S. exports is very closely linked to attracting more global companies to the U.S. Uh, We also uh, make up about 14% of local R&D. So I think that there's some counterintuitive facts about foreign investment in the U.S. Our organization works to push that information out um, as broadly as possible. Um, Over the last three years, we've actually had some really good developments with the administration. Last year, uh, and and a lot of it, I think, was due to the fact that we, we showed them that the U.S. was not taking advantage of this growing global capital and that they could do more to bring in more investment and jobs and insourcing Um, And so last year, uh, the administration launched something that's called Select USA, which is the first time that the U.S. has had an investment promotion agency at the federal level, right? I think we had 11 different groups responsible for U.S. exports and not one focused on investment promotion. We always leave a lot of that to our governors, but it started getting harder for the governor of Ohio to go compete against Singapore, And so we needed something, we felt, at the federal level to help um, encourage companies to come invest in the U.S. to add to the work that was already being done by the federal government. So U.S. ambassadors abroad who are working to bring in, are working to get contracts for exports, for U.S. exports, can also talk about the benefits of doing business right here in the U.S. So it wasn't really adding another layer of bureaucracy. It was just actually trying to make what's already out there Uh, more uh, comprehensive in terms of how the U.S. can benefit from the global economy. So Select USA is still very small, um, and that's housed within the Commerce Department. Um, They're actually going to have a pretty large um, Select USA summit in September, September 12th and 13th. And uh, I think they're looking to bring in governors and others to really market the U.S. as a place to come and do business. Um, The administration issued an open investment statement last year, shortly after the launch of Select USA, which reaffirmed the U.S.'s longstanding policy of national treatment, which was uh, very welcome. Uh, Secretary Clinton actually held a roundtable, an insourcing roundtable, with about 10 of my uh, company CEOs, part of the President's Council on Jobs and Competitiveness, to discuss ways in which the U.S., could bring in more foreign investment. That was pretty historic. Um, Secretary Bryson has indicated that foreign investment in the U.S. is one of his top three priorities. That was historic. Welcome. Um, And the president, uh, as Dan mentioned, held an insourcing forum at the beginning of this year, which was great, although at that forum, insourcing was a little bit of a zero-sum game uh, mentality to some extent because it talked about bringing jobs back from other countries. And our definition of insourcing is just global companies creating jobs here, whether they be new jobs or supporting existing jobs. It's not about taking jobs away from another economy. So there's been some, some progress on that, on that front in terms of the U.S. Um, right now, uh, there's not a, a lot of discriminatory proposals because there's just not a lot happening. Uh, and that's what I attributed it to. But, um, you know, in an election year, the rhetoric can get pretty uh, severe, and I've already started seeing some of it. I think almost every member of Congress ran against China in 2010. Every ad was about jobs going to China and obviously conflated a whole bunch of different issues. So, you know, even though um, these international agreements that that we're talking about today are are focused on our ability to invest overseas and make sure that – Uh, U.S.-based companies are protected. They're also very important because I think that they help show that the U.S. is very serious about also creating an environment here um, for foreign companies. I'll stop there. Thank you. Nancy. Well, our next speaker... uh, 
his, his, his CV really belongs on a scroll, uh, and it would take a long time to really uh, discuss all of uh, Jim's accomplishments. But uh, I'll just name a few. Jim is uh, an attorney at Greenberg Targ, uh, and he's one of two chairs of the firm's global practices group. Uh, he is a leader in the firm's overall worldwide practice with an emphasis in his own practice on, on international business, including trade, investment, and finance. In particular, uh, Jim offers legal and strategic advice to worldwide clients based on his unique experience uh, with the many issues relating to the global rules for trade and commerce of the World Trade Organization. He is a former chief judge of the WTO appellate body, which is the the highest, uh, basically the Supreme Court of of the WTO. He's also a former member of Congress, uh, Congress of the United States, and a former special assistant to the U.S. Trade Representative in the Executive Office of the President. In, In December of 2003... Uh, Jim completed eight years and, t- and two terms on the appellate body. He was a founding member uh, of the appellate body of, of, of the Supreme Court and was twice appointed by consensus of the members of the WTO and was twice elected chairman by his six colleagues. And during his eight years of service t- uh, to the members of the WTO, he was the only American uh, and the only North American on the appellate body. Um, Jim's final decision uh, for the WTO was as a presiding judge in the appeal and the complaint by the European Union, uh, Japan, China, Brazil, and other WTO members against restrictions applied by the United States on steel imports, the famous Steel 201 case. And and following that decision uh, by the United States to comply with the ruling by Bacchus and his colleagues, uh, the New York Times concluded that this case was the rough equivalent of Marbury versus Madison the 1803 decision that established the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of the Constitution, able to force Congress and the executive branch to comply with its rulings. According to the American lawyer, James Bacchus, as much as anyone, can lay claim to being the John Marshall of the World Trade Organization. He's with us today. While in Congress, uh, Bacchus was a leader in bipartisan efforts to advance international trade issues. He was a supporter of presidential fast-track negotiating authority on trade issues. Uh, He was a leading supporter of the NAFTA, a vocal advocate of extending MFN, Most Favored Nation, treatment to to China, champion of the Caribbean Basin Initiative, and one of six original co-sponsors of the implementing legislation for the Uruguay Round Trade Agreements Act, which is what uh, created the WTO. Uh, Jim has also been a professor at Vanderbilt University, an adjunct professor uh, at other universities, at Rollins University. most important to his, his role here today, Jim is a, a member of the Commission on Trade and Investment Policy of the International Chamber of Commerce uh, in Paris and the Business and Industry Advisory Committee to the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, the investment guidelines, which are the topic of this discussion, were published under his direction. Uh, finally, uh, Jim Box is the author of the book Trade and Freedom, which is published in London in 2004 by Cameron May. And uh, it's a, a book that I'm in the middle of reading, and uh, I would so far, I would recommend it. Uh, and uh, I'll stop there, and please help me uh, welcome Jim Bacchus to Footy. Thank you so much, Dan. So far, this has been a great program. I'll, uh, I'll try not to uh, diminish it uh, with anything I'm about to say, but uh, after hearing all that about me, you can... Uh, see why I'm rarely invited to speak uh, in Washington uh, anymore. Um, I seem, uh, based on uh, how I've been described, to be a federalist. Uh, We'll see. Perhaps there's room for me among the libertarians at at Cato. Uh, In any event, I want to thank uh, Josh and and Nancy, and thank you all for being here. And let me uh, state uh, where I stand clearly from the outset. I am uh, very much in favor of free trade. Uh, This means I'm in favor of both exports and imports. Um, You see why I'm not running for office again? (laughs) Uh, I'm also very much in favor of free investment. Um, This means I'm in favor of both outbound investment and inbound investment. Ditto on the office seeking. I'm also very much opposed to protectionism in in both trade and investment. Certainly, protectionism hinders business, and I work closely with many businesses all over the world. Uh, And it's right for businesses to be concerned about profits and jobs 
and the futures of their employees, their workers, their shareholders, all that is perfectly justified. And I work uh, against protectionism for those reasons. But there are transcending reasons why we should be concerned about protectionism in all its guises, including investment protectionism. The reason is this. Free trade and free investment multiply our opportunities for freedom worldwide. Trade and investment don't create freedom, but they create opportunities for millions upon millions of more people to have more say in their own lives, to be able to make more personal choices about how they wish to live. And that's how I define freedom. Those are the stakes. So if we ask why should we be concerned about investment protectionism, that's the reason, because it shrinks our chances for freedom here in America and everywhere around the world. This is why Josh's work is important. This is why Nancy's work is important. This is why it's important that we care that investment protectionism is rising. And this is why we need to pay as much attention to investment policy as we pay to trade policy. My own prediction as someone who has judged more international trade disputes than I can remember is that we're going to see far more international investment disputes in the future than we'll see trade disputes. And believe me, we'll see plenty of trade disputes. And one of the challenges we face is that we don't have the rules in place or the system in place to deal with investment disputes that we have already in place to deal with trade disputes through the WTO. Ten years ago, only 2% of the investment measures that were being applied newly by countries around the world were restrictions on investment. Today, 32% of the new investment measures that are being applied worldwide are restrictions on investment. They are deliberalizing. And it's not what you think. It's not just all those developing countries restricting our investments overseas. Most of these new measures restricting investment are being applied by developed countries, by the United States, Europe, and other developed countries. Also, we no longer live in the stereotypical north-south world in which we <coughs> lived years ago, or at least thought we lived, in terms of investment. We now live in a world in which developing countries and traditional co countries are major players in international investment. 52% of all of uh, the uh, inbound investment is coming into developing countries nowadays. Furthermore, developing countries are major players increasingly in making investments overseas themselves. Uh, outbound investment by developing and transitional uh, countries increased 21% last year. What this means is that there is an emerging convergence between developed and developing countries alike in the need to do something more to protect investors and investments worldwide. And this creates an opportunity for more of the rules we need in order to protect investment and in order to prevent the loss of the freedom that can come from more investment throughout the world. This is why the International Chamber of Commerce and its national committee, the United States Council for International Business, have focused recently on trying to revise the ICC's guidelines for international investment. These, of course, are guidelines. They're not rules. They're principles. They're not binding on anyone. But these ICC guidelines through the decades, dating back to just after World War II, have set out the basic fundamental principles that have served as the checklist for countries as they have negotiated all kinds of international investment agreements. And these guidelines establish the basic principles that Josh set out earlier that have animated the United States and its negotiations and the Europeans and their negotiations and other countries as well. They have long served in that role. Yet these guidelines were last revised 40 years ago. We have now completed an effort to revise them for the first time in four decades. We did so through a global 
effort that included thousands upon thousands of internationally minded companies in the 120 national committees of the International Chamber of Commerce. From that effort, collecting their views, soliciting their ideas, building a consensus uh, on uh, what kind of an agreement they have about what the international business community would like to see, we have now revised these guidelines and brought them into the 21st century. That's what we announced in Doha. You can find these guidelines on the ICC's uh, website, uh, free for all to download, free for all to peruse. What's new in these guidelines? Much is new. Much is new. We talk, for example, about the need to have investment protections dealing with the uh, non-tariff barriers uh, that uh, Josh referred to in terms of standards and technical regulations. We talked about the need to provide more protections against performance requirements that discriminate against investors. We talked about the need for more transparency, uh, for uh, a prohibition on discrimination in government procurement for more protection of services relating to investment, for more protection of intellectual property rights relating to investment. We uh, talked about the need for uh, protecting non-equity modes of investment, uh, as the UNCTAD puts it. Uh, here we're talking about uh, efforts to, coo- to uh, make investments uh, without actually purchasing an ownership interest through franchising, distribution, or uh, other manufacturing uh, contracts. Uh, There's much that goes on increasingly in global supply chains uh, in a non-equity fashion that needs protection against discrimination. We talked about the need to keep from using national security as a pretext for protectionism. We talked about the need for uh, uh, having uh, investor state dispute settlement provisions, uh, such as we have in Chapter 11 uh, of the NAFTA in international investment agreements. We talked about the need to make certain uh, that we provide for technology transfer, but provide for it in a voluntary way that balances uh, the competing equities, the competing interests in both innovation and uh, the dissemination of new technologies, a vital issue for the future. We talked about the need to prevent corruption uh, that uh, inhibits and frustrates and taints Investment. We talked about the need to ensure competitive neutrality in state-owned enterprises. Uh, again, another issue that uh, is reflected to some extent in uh, the new model bilateral investment treaty and is already uh, on the table in the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, negotiations, just to cite one. And here I want to pause and uh, mention two particular issues that uh, fly in the face, uh, perhaps, of uh, the stereotypes uh, that uh, many people have about business in the international business community. There are new chapters in these guidelines, guidelines of the business community ourselves on corporate social responsibility and on sustainability, entire chapters. This is nothing that has been imposed on the business community worldwide. These guidelines have been proposed by the business community. These are things that the business community itself wants in terms of investment. Business realizes that corporate social responsibility must be a part of any investment. And business realizes further that the only kind of growth that's going to last is growth that is sustainable. We will not create any new jobs on a dead planet. So there is much here in these uh, guidelines that goes beyond even what we're seeing in uh, the model investment agreement as as revised uh, by the United States or in the European uh, efforts uh, uh, that are occurring simultaneously. Uh, These guidelines point the way forward, and we're hopeful that they will be useful to the governments of the world, the investors of the world, to hosts of investment, to countries making investments, uh, as they continue to grapple with this growing global concern. And here I'll conclude by just sharing with you the scope of this concern in, in terms of how we deal with it. We have a world trading system that is still inadequate and that, worse, is very much an impasse right now. But we have in that world trading system rules that cover more than 96% of all world commerce and do so successfully just about every day 
uh, in just about every part of the world. In investment, we're far behind that. Here's what we have in investment right now. And uh, I didn't uh, count these up myself. UNCTAD did. Uh, And this is what they found. We have, at this point, about 6,100 international investment agreements worldwide, including about 2,800 bilateral investment treaties. The rest are uh, free trade agreements with investment chapters and other uh, analogous uh, agreements. That's a lot of agreements. But altogether, altogether, these agreements cover only about two-thirds of all the existing stock in the world of foreign direct investment. And as we've already seen today, they don't cover at all a lot of the countries and a lot of the bilateral investment uh, between countries uh, in the growing parts of the world. UNCTAD uh, did a calculation. They asked, how many more such international investment agreements, bilateral investment treaties and the like, will we need to cover that remaining one-third of the existing stock of foreign direct investment? We will need only an additional 14,100 treaties, which helps explain why he's leaving the government. Now, we need to get to work, and uh, I'm pleased that we finally have a model bilateral investment treaty here in the United States. The hard part is over. Uh, The the Americans have decided amongst ourselves what we want. Now, all we have to do is negotiate with other countries. We'll see what happens with China and India and Indonesia and Russia and and others. Uh, And we need to get started. But we need to remember the stakes as we do. The stakes of course, are profits, their jobs, their futures uh, for millions of people worldwide. But the stakes are not just economic stakes. The stakes are personal stakes uh, for all of humanity, for human freedom. Because with more trade and with more investment and with freer trade and freer investment, we can create more opportunities for everyone to share in more freedom. Thank you very much.